Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I am doing very well. Today, we have two segments that we want to talk about. Big news. Uh, the DOJ made arrests of a couple of former police officers in Louisville in the Breonna Taylor case. I think they're all former police officers, aren't they? None of them are current officers. That's right. One of them is th- they have started termination proceedings. Okay. Well, we'll talk all about it when we get to the segment. So we're going to talk about the federal government has stepped in and made some arrests um, that that the city and the state never did. So we are going to talk about that. Jasmine's going to bring us all the news about that. Uh, Fancy Farm was last weekend, so I am going to give you a rundown of all the things that happened out there in Western Kentucky and all the speeches and etc. So we have that to talk about. A couple quick hits, but our interview this week was with Chris Brown. She is a candidate for kentucky house in northern kentucky district 69 which is uh, kind of in between kenton and, and boone county it includes some of florence which is in boone county and then ellesmere and erlinger in kenton county so so that's who our interview was with jasmine i got I've, i got very distinctive pam stevenson vibes from from chris brown and not just because they're both black women but just like she threatened to hug us and uh was like making making jokes and 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 you know just i don't know i i, I felt i felt a little i felt a little uh, echo of of Pam whenever we were talking to Chris Brown. What, what did you think of the interview? Yeah, Chris Brown is very sweet and personable, and I really enjoyed talking to her, you know, before and after our show as well. And I'm really excited about having a good candidate running for this seat because she's not running against an incumbent. Um, the incumbent lost in his primary. Mm-hmm. Um, she's running against a Liberty candidate in Northern Kentucky. So um, I really hope this is an area where Democrats can, you know, take a seat. Yeah, absolutely. It's a district that was won by Andy Bashir, but also by Daniel Cameron. So it is one of those swingy districts. It's one of those districts that Democrats are going to have to learn how to organize in. Chris Brown is doing that work now. We talked to her about that. So learn all about it in our interview at the end of the show. But before that, let's get to our news. Jasmine, tell us all we need to know about the DOJ making arrests in Louisville. All right, Robert, it has been nearly two and a half years since LMPD killed Brianna Taylor in her apartment. And last Thursday, we got indictments of four police officers. Um, so this, these are indictments from the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland's DOJ, um, and they've charged Joshua Jaynes, Kelly Hannah Goodlett, Kyle Meany, and Brett Hankison with federal crimes related to the death of Breonna Taylor. So Jane's Goodlett and Meany face charges related to falsifying the search warrant that led to the raid of her apartment. So um, we've talked about this story several times before, and we cover Joshua Jane's termination hearing as well as his appeal. Jane's wrote um, that he verified that packages for Jamarcus Glover, Brianna Taylor's ex-boyfriend, um, were being sent to her apartment, and he wrote that he verified that they were being sent there through a U.S. postal inspector. But we now know from interviews that he got that information, or said he got that information from Officer Mattingly, um, who had gotten information from Shively Police, not a postal inspector. Goodlett also allegedly added a paragraph um, to the affidavit 
for the warrant about confirming that Jamarcus Glover lived at Breonna Taylor's address in February 2020, um, which the DOJ says was misleading because they knew he was not living there then. James also allegedly lied in an investigative letter about the warrant and Goodlett signed on to that letter. Um, and the letter was actually written in the indictment says April or May of 2020, which is after Breonna Taylor was killed. I thought that that was really interesting because I've seen thousands of these like police investigative letters as a defense attorney. And this one was written a considerable period of time after her death. Retrospectively. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which, you know, they do, you know, they, they can't write those, you know, while something is happening. Um, they do write them afterwards, of course, but um, this seems like quite a bit of time had passed when this investigative letter was written. And, and protesters were storming up in the streets by the time that they started writing this letter. It was clear that this was this investigation had entered into a different phase by the time they wrote this letter. So her death was, I believe, March 13th, 2020, and really the last week of May um, after George Floyd's death was when um, this really started getting attention and protests started. Yeah. So I'm not sure that it happened while protests were going on, but it was already getting media coverage yeah. because of the indictment of Kenneth Walker. Right. WDRB was writing about this death. Yeah, and, and I think um, there were some national figures that had started stirring the pot around this this issue yes yeah. definitely yeah so th- it was it was it was not the level that it achieved it hadn't even started that phase but it was it was kind of like okay this Under is something scrutiny yeah like, it was at the trying it was, to get their ducks in a row exactly yeah that's i think i think what you're trying to say that that makes sense to me yeah yeah so the indictment alleges that james called sergeant mattingly to try to get him to verify that glover had received packages there um, and that Mattingly actually didn't verify that, but James put in the investigative letter that he did. Um, so that's part of the allegations. And then this next part was completely new to me. So the DOJ alleges that James and Goodlett met in a garage in May 2020 and conspired to knowingly falsify an investigative document and conspired to like mislead the authorities who are investigating the shooting. So the indictment says they agreed to tell investigators a false story that Sergeant Mattingly told them that Glover was receiving packages there. Two days after that garage meeting, Janes met with the Public Integrity Unit, unit and told them that Mattingly nonchalantly told him your boy Jamarcus Glover just gets Amazon packages or mail there. Goodlett, shortly after that, told the Attorney General's investigators that Mattingly told her in passing that he verified Glover was getting packages at her apartment. Um, so this was brand new information to me, and it to it means that someone gave the, the DOJ this information. Yeah. <laughs> and I, from what it sounds like, so the indictment includes Janes and Kyle Meany, and then Brett Hankison kind of has a separate indictment because it's kind of a separate thing that happened. 
And then Kelly Hannah Goodlett, um, there's no indictment, there's an information, and she was not arrested either um, because I believe she's reached a plea. So I don't know if maybe she admitted um, to that meeting happening um, in exchange for a plea, but I don't know. I think there were also texts that maybe indicated that they met up, but someone had to have told them that that happened and where they met. Um, So I thought that this was just crazy. Yeah, it is. It is crazy. One of the things that I thought was interesting about this entire thing was the combination of information that we already knew that amounted to like what probably was either at least like bad behavior or I don't really know, but what seemed like crimes to me, like, like what we had known about the involvement of the Shively police department giving information and, and that being what, what the, the, you know, the basis of, of the warrant was about, which we found out years ago was, was at least not true where I think in the warrant, it did say like we've confirmed with the police to, or with the postal uh, service. And then we learned later that the postal service doesn't work with the LMPD and they had to get it through a secondary source. And that was, that's been something we've known about for years. And then this information, which is new. So it is kind of this interesting and like con- conglomeration of like things that we knew about that were bad, that nobody was doing anything about. Like Daniel Cameron was not doing anything about the fact that this clearly, pro- this process was clearly messed up and it's a real shame that he let it, let it lie not only has the dog like picked up the stuff that we know knew about they also added to it a lot more information in investigation that they've done that that seems with information that seems a lot more damning uh to to these officers yeah the other thing that is kind of strange to me about like what they came up with is that they you know decided to say that maddingly told us this and they both did in fact say that in their interviews and so It kind of feels like they were trying to throw him under the bus since they like knew that this wasn't the truth. So I wonder kind of what uh, Sergeant Mattingly's relationship to these officers was. I mean, yeah, that's an interesting and open question. And if it goes to trial, which I don't know what's going to happen, we may learn more about. But uh, yeah, definitely, definitely some interesting stuff going on there. Or maybe that, you know, they could have thought, I mean... Mattingly is the one who got shot as well during the Breonna Taylor raid. And maybe they thought nothing's going to happen to him. Uh, you know, I don't know. But I, I just thought that the garage meeting story was not something I expected uh, to come to light. But yeah, here we are. Yeah. Um, so that those are kind of the circumstances surrounding Joshua Jaynes and Kelly Hannah Goodlett. And then the other person charged with this kind of like search warrant indictment was Kyle Meany. And his charges relate to falsifying an affidavit and making a false statement to federal investigators. So the falsifying an affidavit has to do with um, being part of the warrant process itself. Um, but the making a false statement comes from when he spoke to investigators he told them that SWAT had asked for a no-knock warrant ahead of time at a planning meeting on March 5th which was you know just about a week before the raid um, but that he knew that that was not true Um, and and that's something we learned I think from early parts of the investigation that were released so that that those are kind of the search warrant related charges and then Hankison's indictment is separate and he's charged with using excessive force during the raid on Brianna Taylor's home. 
He's accused of violating the constitutional rights of Taylor and a person staying in her apartment, as well as the neighbors. The state want an endangerment charges that he was acquitted of only related to Brianna Taylor's neighbors. And these charges relate to violating her constitutional rights, as well as Kenneth Walker's and the neighbors. They allege that he fired shots through a bedroom window that was covered with blinds and blackout curtains um, and fired through a glass door that had blinds. So, you know, the point here is that he was unable to identify any target with blackout curtains or blinds. Right. Those are the allegations from these indictments. So Meany and Goodlett were part of the place-based investigations unit. Meany was the supervisor and Goodlett, a detective in that unit. She was also involved. If you've heard her name before, um, it's because she was also involved in a separate DOJ investigation related to throwing drinks on civilians. Yes. Oh God. I, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was pretty rough. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Um, and I, I mentioned this before, but all were arrested and booked except Goodlett, um, which likely means that she already has a plea deal in place. The other three were released by a federal magistrate judge on Thursday. Hankison and Janes have already been terminated and um, have, you know, had their appeal hearings before the merit board. But LMPD started termination proceedings for Meany and Goodlett on Thursday, um, but Goodlett resigned on Friday. Um, but I believe Meany has been like served with termination paperwork. Looking at, you know, these charges and, and what these officers are going to face, the name of these charges is called like deprivation of rights under the color of law. Um, and that carries a maximum of life in prison when it, when it involves a death. Um, Goodlett does not face a deprivation of rights charge, but the other three do. Meany and Janes also face obstruction charges, which carry a maximum of 20 years. Um, and then their false statement charges carry five years. Goodlett, I believe, only faces a conspiracy charge, which also carries five years. And then Janes faces a conspiracy charge as well for the garage meeting yeah. um, incident. The, the structure of these charges and the fact that Goodlett is only being charged with the conspiracy charge, that also leads us to think that she might have gotten a plea, right? Is that is that... Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, that that would be my guess. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So so this is, you know, for those of us who've been following the story for for years, I mean, and have wanted justice for Brianna, I think it's 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 good it's good news, I guess. Um one one thing that is, you know, I guess disappointing is the right word for it is that none of these charges relate to killing Brianna Taylor. Right. I right. mean, um, they're, they're, you know, falsifying warrant information, shooting blindly into uh, a field and, and, you know, you might have missed somebody. But like the logic that that Daniel Cameron put forth in his original statement was like, I couldn't we couldn't charge these officers w with homicide. They're still not they're still not charged with homicide. They're charged with much more serious crimes uh, and they're they're charged, you know, very. Um, with, with with stuff that, that carries real prison terms uh, attached to it, but but still none of none of these cases are related to you killed Brianna Taylor and and should face consequences for that action. Is is that is that correct? And how do you feel about that? That is correct. There you know there aren't any homicide charges, but deprivation of rights when someone 
when there's a death um, can result in life in prison. Yeah. But I, I don't think that's going to be the punishment. I wouldn't want that to be the punishment. I don't know. I think that there is a self-defense case to be made um, for a murder charge. But my thing is that other defendants, they they have to make that argument at trial. You mm-hmm. know, they don't get to make that argument until then. They're usually incarcerated mm-hmm. until they have a trial and, and can make a self-defense argument to a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that this case was just treated differently and that the grand jury should have at least gotten to consider it. Yes, yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I think I think presenting the charges in L- I mean, that was what Daniel Cameron said he was going to do, and of course that's not exactly how it happened. He never presented the, the homicide charges according to um, the anonymous grand jurors who, who've come forward. Um, that that That's certainly true. You know, at the end of the day, when, when, when I think about these charges, I, I am glad that a larger... Sort like a, a larger portion of justice for for the killing of Breonna Taylor is, is going to be faced by these these um, you know these former officers and, and these I guess officers who are facing termination. Um, I I do wish that that the laws of this country were a little bit more you know that killing a civilian as a police officer carried a larger punishment um, that that you could get in trouble for that. It seems at this point that it's literally impossible um, if you if you kill someone as a police officer to get in trouble for for that act and and finding justice means like nibbling around the edges and finding the worst thing related to that right. that you did um that 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 was structured. And yeah something that i think is was just a huge problem with the state investigation is that daniel cameron kept saying we're not conducting the investigation related to the search warrant the search warrant mm-hmm. is completely relevant to her death because you know murder doesn't just have to be intentional kentucky has wanton murder and whether they lied to get a search warrant like i think that is relevant to whether their behavior was wanton yeah and that's another thing too because daniel cameron is is um, he was the person in charge of bringing state charges, and Kentucky has wanton murder. I don't know what the federal laws, and, and the DOJ is, of course, uh, going to bring federal charges, and that's in a different, a totally different set of of charges. Um, and and Daniel Cameron, you know, because of the way that the search warrant uh, process happened, and from this information that the DOJ was able to suss out, seems like there would have been a very strong case for wanton murder if if the indictment had come down for that. Um, but but of course, it, of course, it didn't. You know, I don't think we need to rehash the fact that Daniel Cameron did an incredibly poor job in the grand jury process um, and, and got caught. So uh, that that's that that was not the final word, as the uh, attorneys for Breonna Taylor said on the day of these arrests. Thank goodness that his his work was not the final word. Um, yeah. But but yeah, big news. This story continues. Um, and, and I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the story continues. Uh, it, it didn't need to end where it had ended. Uh, but before we end the segment, Jasmine, anything else you have to say about it? Nope. I think right. that about covers it. All right. 
on to something slightly more light and fun, maybe the fancy uh, farm picnic. I don't know. Was it fun? Was it fun? Uh, no, maybe not. Maybe not fun. Uh, yeah, the fancy farm picnic out in Western Kentucky. So if you aren't familiar, the Western Kentucky Catholic Church picnic in Fancy Farm, I think is for St. Jerome's Parish out there in Fancy Farm. Uh, it takes place every year on the first Saturday in August, and it, that was last weekend. If you didn't know, uh, yeah, every year Kentucky politicians take the stage to speak and make jokes at each other's expense. Over time, the speeches have, of course, become much more Republican because the first district in Western Kentucky has become much more Republican itself. Uh, recently, the MC has even become partisan. This year, the Republican House Speaker David Osborne was the MC. We've had, I think, was Robert Stivers the the MC a couple of years ago? I mean, they they keep they keep getting these like big deal Republicans to be the MCs, and then they have like moderate to conservative democrats as the as the mcs in the years they get yeah the last mc that i actually remember was matt jones yeah bob babbage did it before and and i think he was a democratic secretary of state a long time ago now as a lobbyist who works very closely with republicans which you have to do as a lobbyist because that's who's in the legislature they should get charles booker to do it if he doesn't get elected to senate i think that he would make a, a really good democratic mc in the future he would yeah um, okay, so so in the picnic, it was mostly Republicans, but a few Democrats did take the stage. Charles Booker, who's, of course, running for Senate. Jimmy Osbrooks, who's running for House in the 1st District in Western Kentucky. And Coleman Elridge, the chair of the Kentucky Democratic Party, all took the stage. So Booker had several zingers for Rand Paul, called him a clown, made fun of his hair, uh, said something about his perm. He wasn't there because he needed to get his perm fixed up. Um, uh, and he made a few more serious points uh, about, you know, Rand Paul's failure to work on any legislation that has passed and on his close relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin um, couched in some funny jokes. So that's what Charles Booker had to say. Coleman Elridge focused on Andy Bashir's record. I think mostly Coleman Elridge was working as a surrogate for Andy Bashir, um, and, and especially as, as Bashir's record uh, related to uh, the tornado relief in Western Kentucky, which, you know, the tornado damage occurred very close to Fancy Farm. It kind of, like, Maysville is, is quite close to Fancy Farm. And, and also, uh, you know, Coleman Elridge focused on Rand Paul's recent vote against expanded health care for veterans, uh, the, the burn pits legislation, which did eventually pass, and Charles, but Rand Paul was one of the few no votes against it. Elroy is also focused on the gubernatorial candidates running for governor on the Republican side, saying it was Gilligan's Island unless Kelly Craft gets off her yacht and buys the island. So that was, was a good joke because Kelly Craft's really rich. You know, it's a good joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jimmy Osbrook's speech was was good too. He he um you know spoke out against a lot of the transphobic rhetoric that had happened in the in the picnic, which we're going to get into with the Republicans that were speaking uh, at the picnic. So all the Republican candidates for governor did show up. So Daniel Cameron spoke after asking for people to give him jokes, <laughs> which that was kind of an odd cell phone. He was like, "Hey, send me jokes," and you know I think actually also that tweet happened like right after the flooding, um, so it kind of landed kind of sideways. Because because it was weird to ask people to give you jokes. And then also it just seemed deeply inappropriate with the timing um, uh, for when he posted that video. Um, he ended up not really telling that many jokes, but he did say that he would always support the blue, um, uh, the, the police. Uh, and the entire time he was speaking, Booker supporters shouted Breonna Taylor at him um, in, a, in a chant. Um, so that was probably the loudest of the that the picnic ever was. And they, and they did not let up for a second uh, shouting Breonna Taylor mm -hmm. at him. So, so I will give him a compliment. I feel like he handled that 
pretty well and did a great job of projecting. I thought the video was kind of hilarious of him just trying his best to scream over the protesters. And it reminded me of, I was a cheerleader for (laughs) many years and coaches would always like scream at us to like project and yell louder. And he used his cheerleading voice. He really (laughs) did. I thought he did a good job. Yeah, he did. I mean, he had to, and and, you know, I do kind of feel like this, this tradition is what it is. Um, And I've heard people who've uh, had to speak at it, you know, refer to it as basically like, hold on and hope it's over soon. Like that's just kind of how, how it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes. So Ryan Quarles also spoke uh, running for governor. He's the secretary of agriculture. Ryan Quarles took some shots at Andy Bichette year uh, made a small dig at daniel cameron saying um you know that people come to fancy farm like a moth to a flame or an attorney general to the governor's race because daniel cameron is the attorney general so was andy Bashir before him um ryan corals didn't make that many jokes um th- you know th- not a lot of people are are super good at this this whole thing um uh and i don't think it really is all that related to being a good governor anyway um but yeah he held on and got through his speech as well mike Harmon was there he seems to really enjoy this event is he running for governor no one really knows that was actually joe coleman elridge he was like oh all the people running for for governor are here uh my carmen and then he just moved on uh it was <laughs> it was pretty funny uh Mike Carmen was there. He did his. He always does this uh, Jeff Foxworthy routine. You know, you may be a, a liberal Democrat, whatever. It, it, you know, it's it's kind of run run its course in my opinion. It, I I did think you know it kind of made him a star the first time he did it. It was kind of funny, but he's been doing it every year since, uh, and it's it's uh. it's kind of fallen flat never was all that funny mix it up a little yeah it wasn't really ever funny to me i'm not the target audience but i think it's got to be it's got to be tired for for everybody at this point savannah maddox was there you know you talked about daniel cameron like doing a good job of projecting savannah maddox had the most singers uh by far she took the most shots at fellow republicans and also didn't spare democrats um she said that ryan corals had the cleanest boots and the cleanest truck of any farmer she's ever seen oh that's really good that is a good i thought i was that's a pretty good joke and then um she she said that uh, daniel cameron was in hiding during bashir's covid19 lockdowns um making fun of him for following the rules that's a very savannah maddox thing to do um, she she also called her opponents the opposite of the dos equis man, the most boring men in politics. So that that you know that's pretty good. Um, I would say she had the best written jokes. Her her delivery wasn't that great, um, but you know, like we said with everybody else, you just hold on and hope to get through it. Um, you know, I I I did I you know, but in, in terms of in terms of the quality of joke. I think Savannah Maddox probably had the highest quality of joke against the Republicans. I would say Coleman Elridge probably was the most well-prepared and delivered the best, but uh, but there you go. There were other Republicans that spoke that weren't running for, for uh, governor. Kelly Paul, the uh, wife of Rand Paul, she gave a remarkably transphobic speech. Uh, I think she went back to the transphobic well a few times. Um, and, and I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but Jimmy Osbrooks, who's the Democratic candidate in the first district, did did call that out pretty specifically. Jimmy Osbrooks is gay. He's a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, so so good for him for for you know not not letting that go by. Um, she tried to try Charles Booker to Quintez Brown, uh, the the man who uh, allegedly tried to kill Craig, Craig Greenberg. And um, Greenberg actually later tweeted that that was you know he he found that offensive. 
He said that Charles Booker called him after that event to make sure he was okay and everything. So Kelly Paul, Kelly Paul uh, got a lot of good marks from from Republicans for being really brutal. Um, so I think that just kind of goes to show what what some people are looking for in this event, which I think kind of goes against the you know maybe maybe the spirit of it. But but I don't know maybe that is the spirit of it. So um, that is that is what it is. Kelly Paul um, being in, incredibly insensitive to to, to folks there. Michael Adams was kind of the opposite of Kelly Paul, gave a very measured speech, very typical for him. He still took several swipes at Democrats, but, you know, he left the kids out of it, you know, uh, out there, Kelly Paul talking about trans kids and, and really, you know, saying really awful stuff about them. That's not what Michael Adams did. I felt like the the, the jokes he made were pretty funny um, and also, you know, not, um, um, not, not you know, inappropriate, I, I guess, is, is one way to put it. So so that's Michael Adams, very, very typical of him. He did announce that he was running for Secretary of State again. Um, so that's that's a race we'll, we'll be following. And, and then Jamie Comer also gave a speech. He's the congressperson for the first district. That person always gets to speak, whoever it is. Um, and, and beforehand, uh, Speaker Osborne, the, the MC, Speaker Osborne, actually made a pretty funny joke about uh, about Jamie Comer. He said that unlike Matt Bevan, he was still elected and still in Frankfurt, which is, you know, Ooh. Jamie, um, which was kind of funny until I thought about it. And I was like, well, wasn't it you who passed those maps, Speaker Osborne? <laughs> Weren't you the one that made Frankfurt part of the first district in the first yeah. place? That was uh, mm-hmm. that was you, I think. So there you go comer's speech was also very transphobic um focused on wokeness that kind of thing i think the trans jokes and just kind of the trans rhetoric that was coming out of this with republicans really awful stuff um but also just kind of reminiscent of of when i first was getting involved in politics in the middle of the 2000s uh, that's how folks talked about gay people the world has changed quite a bit in the intervening 20 years um and i think that if we look back on how conservatives really you know i'm across the political spectrum in both parties but just conservatives spoke about gay folks that was it was deeply inappropriate and i think there's a lot of people who'd be ashamed of that now i would not be shocked if in the near future um we looked back on some of the rhetoric about trans folks and and those people had had similar thoughts it's wrong now it's wrong it's always been wrong um it's been wrong in the past it's wrong in the present it'll be wrong in the future um it's a real shame that we do this um that we we use that kind of language and and i do think that there are a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who you know, we're able to make jokes um, and, and, you know, keep to the spirit of the event of, of taking swipes at your enemy w- without, you know, using deeply inappropriate rhetoric. So that's what I have to say about that. Um, Jeff Noble, friend of mine, long-term Democratic Party activist, um, he said that this was going to be his final fancy farm. Um, Jeff's getting, you know, Jeff's not old, but he's getting older, I guess. But, uh, you know, I don't think that that's the reason he's doing it. The, the, the pick picnic just seems like it's getting um a lot nastier a lot lot meaner and a lot more exclusionary of democrats but you know i do think that the democrats who made the trip um they did great uh charles booker had a lot of people there when i was like thinking about who's gonna make the trip i was like man are there gonna be any democrats that go and there were there were a lot of booker people that were there um so good for him for getting the people out um and next year it will be a gubernatorial year, um, so there will be, I think, uh, several candidates on both sides of the aisle that will make their the trip down. So, so that may be a, a, a good year to go and a good year for it to get wild. So that's my sum up of Fancy Farm. Jasmine, did you watch any of the speeches? What did you think? Anything you have to say about Fancy Farm? I didn't really watch Fancy Farm in full, but I watched like little clips 
and highlights. And I don't know. I, I think that it, it feels like soon it will just become like a Republican event. Maybe I don't think for one, it's, it's absolutely horrible that they're telling hateful jokes. Like I think that fancy farm can be what it is, which is kind of like a bit of a roast without doing things that are hateful or offensive. Like I think, you know, the moth to a flame or the attorney general to the governor's race, you know, you can make jokes like that without saying um, hateful things about who people are. And so I hate that that's what it's become. um, But it feels like it's become more and more Republican every year with less Democrats attending. Even before the floods in Eastern Kentucky, Andy Bashir had already said that he wasn't going to go because he was going on a trip to Israel instead. Um, I don't know if that was uh, coincidental or intentionally timed, but it it just feels like maybe this is going to become a Republican picnic. Um, I was proud to see, you know, a lot of Booker supporters there. That seemed like an intentional thing to round up a, a troop to go um, so that there were supporters there. But I don't, I don't know what if it's if there will be Democrats there, you know, five yeah. years down the line. I, I think it really does depend on on who the Democrats are that are running in any particular time. Like Andy Bashir is a really really good governor, but this is not really his his scene. <laughs> he's done it several times, and I, you know he's very well prepared. I think Matt Bevin was like spectacularly horrible at it. You know, like this was not his thing at all, but it got carried because it's kind of a Republican area. Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting, and I think like we we're kind of in a moment where we don't have good people to do this right mm, now. Yeah, Mitch McConnell. Andy Bashir, not not known for his like stand-up routine yeah you know if rocky adkins runs for a secretary of agriculture which is like one of the rumors that we've been talking about um i think he'd be great at it you know that's that's something he he might be good at uh and and i think that there's a couple of other people on both sides of the aisle who 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 are prepared for this but like ryan corals you know he was there he did the jokes but he's (laughs) he's not that's not his jam like savannah maddox had good jokes did not deliver them very well um you could tell daniel cameron was just like screaming as loud as he could waiting for his five minutes to be over uh you know that that is what it is and and there's some people that that thrive off that environment just not a lot of the people that we have running for office right now it's not like a required skill to (laughs) to run for office um so it does kind of depend on if you have a candidate or a politician who uh who's good at that so so you know we'll see we'll see what happens next year it's sure to be a barn burner one of these years i'm gonna make it down there it's a it's a long way away it's always really hot outside but uh maybe maybe i'll go we'll see all right a couple quick hits before we get to our interview with chris brown uh president joe biden made a trip to eastern kentucky to see the damage from the floods he gave a lot of hugs uh promised to give the federal government support until everybody was made whole and he also made promises to deal with a low fema acceptance rate that has plagued western kentucky after the tornadoes that's an issue that brought was brought up by andy Bashir, something that the folks out there have been yelling about for a long time so i'm glad that that made its way to the president um so we'll we'll see what we'll see what happens there so uh, but but i was glad the president did make the trip um did, did see the damage um it's something that he's good at um but what he needs to be good at is is getting the 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 aid um to kentucky for the folks who need it so um we'll, we'll see how that goes 
And then lastly, John Tilley is a former House member from Hopkinsville, a former Democratic House member from Hopkinsville, as well as a former Justice Cabinet Secretary in the Bevan administration. He was arrested for rape earlier this week. There's not a lot of details that are available, except for that um, he's alleged to have had sex with someone who was too intoxicated to give consent. So um, something we're, we're tracking, you know, John Tilley is somebody that, you know, we've both, I think, admired, thought he did a good job um, in his job as a legislator and as uh justice secretary so that's that's really troubling news uh to hear about about john tilly um so we'll be we'll be tracking that as it happens anything about those quick hits jasmine no just really hate to see that about john tilly yeah he was one of the biggest advocates you know in the field that i worked in um came to our conference sometimes and spoke and i hate to hear that like yeah. that he's charged with that 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 happened to a victim potentially it it's really bad yeah 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 so um we'll we'll, we'll see what happens uh in the case um so just just thinking of everybody involved in the in the case the the, the victim first and foremost um the alleged victim first and foremost all right well let's get to our interview with chris brown Chris Brown is the Democratic candidate for House District 69 in Kenton and Boone counties in northern Kentucky. Her district includes parts of Erlanger, Florence, and her hometown of Ellesmere, as well as other parts of central Kenton County. Ms. Brown helped launch EAT, which stands for Education, Advocate, Transcend, and it's a social, economic, and political justice organization um, which built upon her work organizing marches in northern Kentucky. So, Chris Brown, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. Yeah, we are thrilled to have you here. So, so you've been engaged in social justice work for a, a long time now, and you know you're now running for for legislatures for the House. So, so tell us, are there things that you believe you can accomplish as a member of the legislature which you cannot do as an activist? And, and just broad, more broadly, tell us why you decided to make the jump from your work as an organizer to running for office. Absolutely. As an organizer, you can only do so much. The transition from organizing to running for office has been a natural progression for me because in my heart, I've always been an advocate. I want to serve the people. I want to make their lives better. As a mother, I want my daughters to have bright futures and safe futures filled with opportunities. With the seat, with the seat at the table, you're in a much better position to advocate for the people and for the children, and for positive change. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I, I, Jasmine, I can remember several years ago talking to, to Dr. Lisa Wilner, who's now a member of the House, about why she wanted to make the jump from uh, being on the school board to being in the legislature, and she gave a very similar answer. You know, there's just so much more that mm-hmm. you can do as a member of the legislature. Absolutely. All right, Absolutely. so Ms. Brown, you you had mentioned, we mentioned EAT uh, in, in, your, mm-hmm. in your introduction. I know you've been engaged in other things, and I'm sure that there's a ton of people listening to our show who aren't as familiar with your background as other folks. I know that you've received an award from the Northern Kentucky NAACP. So just tell us a little bit about the social justice and racial justice work you've been engaged in in Northern Kentucky so far, um, stuff that you think are relevant to to your run for office. So yes, I developed EAT as an umbrella. Um, at the time, I was working heavily uh, with social justice um, and racial justice um, matters. You know, you're, you're from uh, by way of Louisville, obviously the Black Lives Matter movement started. I wanted not to be pigeonholed into the activism set, if you will. I wanted to 
create an organization to where I could work for the people in it, in, in all of their needs, whatever it was people needed. I wanted to be able to do it under EAT. And so after I developed EAT, I really hit voter registration and civic engagement education more specifically for marginalized communities, because I wanted to make sure that, you know, as we talked about having a seat at the table uh, just a moment ago, that they were equipped to be able to do that. So largely the work that I have been doing has been more focused on marginalized communities getting involved in the process. And so the leap for me from advocacy um, to running for the legislature, kind of they're synonymous for me, but yes, there just is a lot more um, that I can do in the legislature. I mean, you can demonstrate in March till the cows come home, but if you're not writing laws, then does it just stop there? So I wasn't willing to let it just stop. I want to see forward movement and progress. And so that really is the why. Well, we are certainly glad you're running and we want to talk to you about your district. So your district has been highly competitive for Democrats in the past. Andy mm -hmm. Bashir actually carried what is now like the new District 69 back in 2019. So can you tell mm -hmm. us a mm -hmm. bit about the different cities and communities in your district? Sure. The district is largely made up of Erlanger, Ellesmere, and parts of Florence, which historically, due to it arguably, arguably being one of the most diverse districts in northern Kentucky, Democratic leaning. The district becomes competitive when there's a good Democrat running. So now we have a ball game, guys. <laughs> I trust my district. I trust them fully. And I believe that the choice is clear. I believe they'll vote against extremism in northern Kentucky. So, you know, the district has been represented by Adam Koenig for several mm -hmm. several terms, and he mm -hmm. lost to a Liberty candidate um, who's significantly more conservative than him on most <laughs> issues. Um, mm -hmm. Have has your opponent's radical stances been much of a campaign issue in the race so far? It has. My opponent's radical and extreme stances they do seem to be an issue for the voters in my district. I hear it door after door. It's the extremes across the board um, in this election that I believe will turn out the vote. People aren't on board with governmental overreach. People aren't on board with their children growing up in a state and a country for that matter, where their children don't share the same liberties they did growing up or even a couple of months ago. I believe they're gonna say so again in November. I'm, I'm, I got a lot riding on November guys. <laughs> yeah, I have a bit of a follow-up question <laughs> about your district. So, you know, with these different, like, small cities like Florence mm -hmm. and Ellesmere, so, you know, is there anything um, unique about campaigning in these different parts of Kenton and Boone County, and, and what's that been like so far? Well, um, I, I think every door is unique, to be honest. That every house, every mm -hmm. family is, is, is unique and individual. Um, it it is especially unique for me as a black woman. Um, it, it just hasn't ever been done here. So um, I, I guess everything is brand new. I'm looking at everything with, um, with, with brand new eyes, but, but I have been pleasantly surprised um, with how welcoming my district has been. So, you know, no, nothing to write home about. It, it, it is really as I assumed it would be. I'm a hometown girl and, and, and it's, it's as I would treat people who were knocking on my doors for votes. So I've been pretty happy thus far. Yeah.
so we did actually want to talk to you a little bit about about what you just mentioned. So, you know, Arnold Simpson retired several terms ago from the legislature. And since then, Northern Kentucky hasn't had a black person that's been elected to the legislature. And, you know, I think you would actually be the first black woman maybe ever elected from Northern Kentucky. Um, and, and I'm really interested to hear, you know, some we, about your experience running as a black woman in Northern Kentucky. You know, it's not a ma- majority minority district. It, it is uh, yeah. it is a pretty mixed district. But but, you know, it's it's a. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not like running in in some of the districts where we have black women elected now, which are which have more black people in them than 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 anything else. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that, and, and and also what it would mean to you if you become elected and are the first black woman elected to the legislature from Northern Kentucky. Right, you're you're correct. Mr. Simpson was the last person to be elected in the region, and I'll be the first black woman elected in the region, and more specifically the 69th district. Uh, campaigning in Northern Kentucky, just like anywhere else, is unique as a black woman because, as I said before, um, it's new. It's never been done. Um, in normal 69th fashion, the district has been warm, fair, welcoming thus far. The district seems to be more concerned with who I am as an individual. rather, <clears throat> And rather, I'm finally going to advocate for their needs over special interests. I'd be remiss if I didn't say I feel the heaviness of this moment and what it means not only for black people, but also black women, what it means for people who may share the sentiment, which I affectionately refer to as my underdog story. This run is very much a movement and a statement. The people of my district are ready for change in which they win and are prioritized over political agendas and trends. Yeah, I really appreciate to hear, you know, your perspective on that. Um, you know, we want to talk a a little bit about specific issues and you've been a community activist around a lot of like social and racial justice issues. Would those be the major issues that you would want to focus on in the legislature? And, you know, are there any current bills or movements, um, surrounding Mm -hmm. those issues that you'd like to sponsor? Gotcha. So I get this question a lot and I mean, you know, because of who I am, social justice is a lane that I'll occupy naturally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, was a, I was born an advocate, but I want to be clear. The major issues I intend to focus on are the ones that my district is focused on. I very much want to regurgitate their concerns and advocate for what keeps them up at night and make their life better um, in Frankfurt. As a state rep, I'll be a strong advocate for communities and local government, small business, workforce development, children and women's rights, public education and healthcare, uh, police and first responders. So that just about covers everyone uh, in my district. Um, So no, social justice is not um, my only focus. It will always be a focus, I mean, obviously. Um, But I'm very robust in in the work that I want to do in Frankfurt. Yeah, so that's kind of my next question. You know, what are the issues um, that you've been hearing about most on the campaign trail from your hopefully future constituents? Sure. Um, Well, I mean, you know, obviously row falling is is one of the main things um, Mm -hmm. that people want, want to talk about. But I will be honest and say that I get about half of the questions about what are we going to do about this um, role falling in, you know, what's next. And the rest of them are, are as simple and as hyper local as, Hey, listen, there's been a pothole on Dixie highway for how long (laughs) and what are you going to do about it? And either, either of those issues for me are priorities. 
I'm going to figure out what we're going to do for the pothole on Dixie Highway. And I'm going to fight like hell to make sure that we can find a happy medium with uh, women in there uh, and autonomy over their bodies. That's actually the second week in a row that our guest um, has said that that's what they've been hearing the most. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are concerned about that. One more question yeah. about issues. You know, is there um, a specific bill that you have in mind that you hope to file once you get there? Well, I will say this. I, I have a lot of, uh, I, I kind of walk through my day thinking of policy. <laughs> you know, just, just, oh, that happened. I got a policy for that. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm going to say is affectionately, uh, my platform is largely going to be based upon what it is that my constituency wants it to be. I'm very serious about that. I think that for a long time, the people have been left behind. I mean, just left in the dust. They don't have a say so. They don't have a voice. It is first and prime priority for me to make sure that their voices are echoed. Yeah, Jasmine. Along with, along with the platform that I, that I uh, previously spoke about, those things are close to my heart, but I will be speaking on what it is they want me to speak on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jasmine, I think that's really astute of you to, to point out that uh, we, we've had similar reactions of the past couple week, weeks in a row around, around issues. And I think that, you know, doing it this way where we're talking to regions together, um, it does make it kind of interesting to see the trends that pop up. Northern mm -hmm. Kentucky and their relationship with their state legislatures are uh, sometimes a little different than how they are in Louisville or how they are in Western Kentucky just because of the, the more urban nature and, and also just the little diffuse way that there's all those little cities that is not something that we're used to in the rest of the state, but it's just something that's super familiar to the folks up in up in Northern Kentucky, uh, just like the folks mm -hmm. up there in, in Ellesmere and uh, in Florence and, and Erlanger. Um, so, Miss Chris Brown, uh, how can people find more about your campaign if they want to get hooked up with you, give you money, volunteer, that kind of stuff? Where can they do all of that? Awesome. My website is chrisbrown4ky.com. Um, you can go there, you can sign up, you can volunteer or sign up to volunteer, excuse me, and you can contribute there. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Um, all of these places are pretty much up to date with where I'll be, what I'll be doing, things that are happening in my life and in, in uh, my district. All right. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you guys too. Keep going. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings with our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.